I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. Yes, uh, this week we are talking about Splash from 1984, the movie about a little mermaid who falls in love with a human. And yes, we've kind of done that movie already. In fact, The Little Mermaid, the animated film came out like five years after this, 1989. Yeah. Why Disney did two mermaid movies with more or less the same story essentially back to back <laughs> your guess is as good as mine wtf michael eisner it's kind of interesting because both of these mermaid movies really set off two diverse parts of disney because the little mermaid which we've already talked about that was our first off, episode well it was Yes. Um, set off the Disney Renaissance. Mm-hmm. But Splash was the first thing to be released at, under the Touchstone Pictures label, which we've talked about before, but that was Disney's adult quote unquote brand. Yep. Started by uh, the, at the time, president of Disney, Ron Miller the son-in-law of Walt Disney, trying to get, uh, trying to have Disney release more adult-centered films without tarnishing the Disney brand. Yeah, and, they want they want that they want that money, but they don't want the Disney name to be tarnished with you know boobies and butts. And they kind of still do that today. Like, the Disney logo is not before any of the Star Wars movies or any of the Marvel movies or even the 20th Century Studios movies. They they separated those three studios uh, without the Disney logo. Same thing with, with Touchstone. You, know, you, don't see the touch to, uh, you don't see the Disney logo when you watch a Touchstone movie. And, yeah. Since you mentioned boobies and butts, when Disney Plus first launched, this movie had a bit of controversy because Disney had censored the movie, uh, adding, you know, CGI hair extensions on Miss Daryl Hannah to cover up her butt and using alternate takes so you wouldn't see the her hair move and see her boobs. And that was a point of contention going all the way up until this past summer. I mean, like, uh, Thor Ragnarok gave us a CGI Hulk butt. Love and Thunder gives us Chris Hemsworth's butt in full view. And who knows however many movies in the Disney pantheon on any studio has a naked male butt in full view. You can't see female butt. Now, granted, I understand that those male butts were mostly used as comic relief, and female butts are default seen as sexy, even if it's not a sexy situation. But there was a bit of pushback. You know, how come I how come I could see, for lack of a better term, how come I could see Chris Hemsworth's butt, can't see Daryl Hannah's butt? But things have changed since then. The version that we watched on Disney Plus is, in fact, the theatrical cut as it was originally released back in 1984. This past summer, they had updated the movie in a new 4K restoration. Uh, Yes, and this 4K restoration uh, is a theatrical cut. No more CGI hair extensions. You do see the shots of Daryl Hannah's boobs for one second. So if you're watching this movie with children, um, boobs and butts are things that women have. I'm sorry. Yeah, and the weird thing is, is that 
I don't particularly see it as overly sexual. It's not. The scenes when you see them are not sexual scenes, but in the public viewpoint, it's very weird that, yes, the female form is, for some reason, automatically seen as sexual, even if it's in a situation that's not sexy. The interesting thing is, is that every time we see her uh, in any kind of nudity, she is either swimming in her mermaid form, or she is just exiting the water and would not have access to clothing. And so, yeah, you know, you can see that as titillating. But the weird thing is, is that in the moments in the movie where people would be sexualizing her, like the time when she climbs out of the water onto the Statue of Liberty, you know, onto Liberty Island, you do see that she's nude and you get a shot of her butt. And, you know, it is a shot of her butt. However, when people on the island start sexualizing her, all you see is her face. You see men reacting to her and you see women clutching their pearls. But in those moments, you do not see her nude. You know, you see a setup shot of her leaving the water, and you do know that she is naked. But in the moment where it would be a sexualized moment, all you see is her face and her confusion. Which I find very interesting. She she doesn't know. She does. I mean, it's where she's from. This is just what pe- they don't wear clothing. They don't yeah. wear clothes. I mean, this is, again, this is five years before the animated Little Mermaid and we get the seashell bra. But uh, this movie also has a different, uh, to kind of turn away from that, since we, I don't know, I don't want that to be the subject of the of the episode. To turn away from that, there was an early attempt by Michael Eisner to do something that they do, quite frankly, now in the in the modern era is the... Uh, corporate synergy. You see, at the time that this movie was being made, the people at the Disney parks were building a new ride. A ride that was using water and a mountainous shape and featured the characters of Song of the South. You know it, you love it, rest in peace, Splash Mountain. Soon to be Tiana's Bayou Adventure. But at the time the ride was being filmed and the time this movie was being made, uh, the ride was going to be called Zippity Doo Falls. And Michael Eisner said that was a horrible name. <laughs> we are not going with that. And since Splash was in production and was going to come out around the same time that the ride was going to be complete, he said, Well, why don't we take this opportunity? And advertise the ride in the movie and advertise the movie in the ride and call the ride Splash Mountain. That is why the ride is called Splash Mountain. Even uh, putting a note to the Imagineers, can you put a mermaid in the ride to tie this into the movie? They did not, but they did keep the name Splash Mountain. On the flip side, in this movie, Tom Hanks, at two different points in this movie, sings zippity doo There is your early corporate synergy of the Michael Eisner era. I, I thought it was weird that he kept singing the song, but then I was like, well, it is owned by Disney, so I guess they wouldn't have to pay for the rights. 
And I just thought that's why he kept doing it. Mm-hmm. That's even weirder. So imagine if at some point in Splash Mountain, there was just a mer- a humanoid mermaid among these little forest creatures that may or may not look like Daryl Hannah. That is very bizarre. One of the interesting things that shows up on the um the Wikipedia entry for this movie, mm-hmm. and I mean, I I guess it's true. Um, it it listed as coming from the um documentary of the Splash DVD. I mean, we both watched this on Disney Plus, so um, I we didn't have access to this documentary. Apparently, Daryl Hannah was so good at swimming like a mermaid because she was really into the the Hans Christian Andersen story, Little Mermaid, hmm. when she was a kid. And she would tie her legs together in the pool and try to swim mermaid style. Hmm. And we talked before in the Little Mermaid episode about how I would do all kinds of weird things in the pool because I spent a lot of time in pools because um, I live in the South and I had a relative with a pool. And so that's just what I did in summer. Um, I never tied my legs together, but I did the same thing just holding my legs together. She was able to swim pretty good in that in that prosthetic or whatever they had her in for that for that mermaid tail. But apparently it was really hard to get on and off, so she just had to, like, sit in it on set. Hopefully she didn't have to go to the bathroom in that thing. Ugh, I don't know. Costumers really need to think about that more. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of the Marvel people talk about that, about how their costumes are not made for that sort of thing. And I'm like, we really, really need to talk to costumers about that. Mm-hmm. Costume people think about biology when you are creating costumes. But it'll put seams and it'll look bad on camera. But um, don't care. Superheroes have needs too. <laughs> True. <laughs> so let's let's kind of go into into the story of this movie. So we start the movie here in the 1960s. Complete with black and white footage of Cape Cod in the 1960s. And we have our our, our main character, Alan, who is just obsessed with the water. He looks in the water. That's all he does when they're on this vacation to Cape Cod. And sees something in the water and then jumps in. It's It's a little girl. He sees this little girl. They're having this great time underwater before he's pulled out. No one sees this little girl but him, so he thinks it's it's some sort of hallucination, some sort of dream. Wonder if that ever really happened. But Cape Cod, still in his adult years, in the modern era of 1984, still becomes this happy place for him. So whenever things go wrong, he says, I'm, I'm just going to go to Cape Cod. It's my happy place. I understand where he's coming from. Everyone has their little little getaway places. But uh, yeah, in the mother in the modern day of 1984, uh, Alan and his womanizing brother are now co-owners of their father's old produce manufacturing and distribution center. I'm just gonna, I kind of want to pause there because. Tom Hanks and John Candy have immensely great chemistry in this movie, playing brothers. Yeah. Also, I want to back up a little bit to the 60s thing. Because mm-hmm. the the little boy playing younger John Candy, mm-hmm. you know, we have the two little we have the two little brothers on the, the ferry to Cape Cod or from Cape Cod or whatever. And the little the little Tom Hanks boy, he's looking in the water and, you know, he jumps in after the little girl he sees in the water and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, little John Candy boy is like 
dropping coins on the deck behind women and trying to look up their skirts. Something he apparently still does as an adult in this movie. Yeah, but the funniest thing to me, like, because you can kind of forgive a little kid if the parents haven't taught them right. Mm -hmm. Because little kid, you know? Yeah. Little kids have to be taught. But the funniest thing to me is that his brother just jumps overboard and the entire ship goes absolutely bonker doodles because, you know, little kid overboard. And so everybody on the ship goes into either rescue mode or panic mode. And all little John Candy goes around looking up skirts while his little brother is presumably drowning because they said he never learned how to swim. Like, even as adult, he never learned how to swim. Mm-hmm. So, like, his brother is overboard, potentially dying. drowning. Potentially dying. Yeah. And his, his first thought is, I get to look panties. Yeah. It's like, yay, no more little brother, and also... <laughs> This is my chance. What an awful, awful little child. And he becomes an awful, awful adult man. Yeah, I mean, he he does not change at all between the time on the boat and the time as an adult, you know, tw- 20 years later or whatever. But the... um. The thing is, is that I do wonder if you can blame the parents because... One of these children is an absolutely wonderful cinnamon roll, and the other one is Dear Penthouse. Literally, literally. Dear Penthouse. Yeah, literally Dear Penthouse. It is a point in the movie. The point that where we first see John Candy is he's holding a bunch of Penthouse magazines saying, Hey, they printed my letter. I bought a copy for everybody. Yeah. Although, once we see them as adults, and we're talking about fathers, uh, the first person we see Tom Hanks talking to is actually Rance Howard. It's uh, Ron Howard and Clint Howard's dad. Yeah, because Ron Howard directs this movie, so of course he's going to put his family in. Yes, Clint Howard is in this movie uh, as a wedding guest. Uh, One of the plot points in the movie is that one of Tom Hanks and John Candy's employees is having a wedding that afternoon, so they're going to close the plant early. All of the workers are invited to the wedding. Uh, The owner, uh, Tom Hanks and John Candy, are working as ushers. And one of the guests is played by Clint Howard. Yeah. But the guy at the beginning of the movie screaming about where are my cherries and you were supposed to bring me, uh, you know, uh, deliver me cherries and whatever. That is Papa Howard. Huh, Rance neat. Howard. Yeah. So the whole family's in this. <laughs> but, yeah, I agree with you and I absolutely love the kind of. Screw up big brother. Uh, responsible little brother responsible little brother energy that's going on here between john candy and tom hanks they have amazing chemistry uh excellent casting excellent pairing i mean this is the 1980s these are already hot actors at the time of of this movie yeah i'm not sure i would have thought to have cast them as Brothers, uh, I'm not sure I would have thought they would have had that chemistry together, but it works. Now, I mean, granted, they don't they make no effort to make these two actors look alike with, you know, they don't have uh, John Candy dye his hair to match Tom Hanks. They don't have Tom Hanks dye his hair to match John Candy. It's just this is Tom Hanks. This is John Candy. This is how they look. You can buy them in in that role, which I like. You know, he's there. They're hugging. They're dancing with each other. They're, you know, kisses on the forehead, noogies like these two are acting like brothers. As a brother myself, I under, I definitely understand where, where where these characters are coming from and how they're acting. And yeah, I can buy these two characters as brothers. 
Tom Hanks, John Candy, amazing chemistry. I wish they had worked together more. The interesting thing is, is that you can tell basically immediately that despite the fact that John Candy is a screw up. This business is doing bank. As as uh, as John Candy says, he was there at the start where their father started the business. He knows everything there is about the business inside and out, even though he is a screw up, even though he's as uh, uh, you know, through various lines in the movie, he spent all the petty cash and in in, of the company gambling. He's he's bought and rotten fruit and vegetables from from different uh, farmers as a way to pay off gambling debts. But he still but, he still has but a heart. Look at the- Tom Hanks's apartment. Like that apartment in New York, even in the eighties. That that's a money apartment. Yeah. You know? Daryl Hannah shows up and uses his credit card to throw down on a shopping spree in Bloomingdale's and he doesn't even bat an eye. He drives a BMW because we know that from the when he asked the valet to get his car mm-hmm. uh, at, towards the end of the movie that he's driving a BMW. John Candy John drives Candy a sports is, car. Yeah. yeah, John Candy drives a slick sports car, you know. Um, He's buying Daryl Hannah all these kind of fairly expensive gifts, you know. He can afford a cab ride from New York City to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. In cash. In cash. Yeah. So, um, and their company has a lot of workers. It's not like there's four people working at this company. And they're and they're good union jobs too, because they're the teamsters. employing teamsters. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I love that this scene. Is... I love that scene. Oh, Tom Hanks, he spends just spend a night with Daryl Hannah, dancing and singing. Hey, I don't blame the guy. I'd be dancing and singing too after a night with Daryl Hannah, dancing with his brothers. And no, no, not in front of the teamsters. Not that he doesn't want to dance with his brother. He just he doesn't want to not look cool in front of the union guys. Yeah. But, I mean, so this is a company with a lot of employees, union employees, you know. In the early 1980s. In the in the 80s when that still meant something, you yeah. know. So, I mean, they're they're doing good for themselves. They're doing good enough for themselves that even though it annoys Tom Hanks that John Candy is making bad deals, it doesn't seem to be hurting the company that much. They even say, you know, they, you know, um, John Candy's character rarely ever spends any time at the job in general and they're doing well. Uh, Tom Hanks' character takes several days off to spend time with Daryl Hannah, and the job still does well. So it's like they don't even need to be there, and they'll still make bank. Yeah. That's how well-oiled that machine is. Yeah, their their dad must have made that company basically self-sufficient, you know? Yeah. They're almost figureheads in, you know, in the terms of the company. Yeah. But we we never see his Alan's initial um girlfriend in this. Mm-hmm. But the movie does start out with his girlfriend calling him up and being like, "Yeah, I'm leaving you. <laughs> I'm moving out today." Because he cannot say the words "I love you." That is and that is his 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 little journey. He cannot confess love to anyone. He even questions it. Is there something broken inside me? I care for her. I want to be with her, but I can't tell her that I love her. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of this ex-girlfriend who moved out. 
and it breaks him. He's at the wedding. He, you know, let, let, we mentioned Clint Howard. All Clint Howard says, hey, Ellen, how you doing? She left me. She left me. She's not coming back. Yeah. And I just love Tom. I mean, Tom Hanks, when he gets in that yell voice, is classic. I mean, it, it's one of the trademarks of Woody from Toy Story. That's yeah. how much that voice is known for Tom Hanks. You are a toy. Yeah. Yeah. The um, but and then of course he immediately gets drunk because he's depressed and he's trying to figure out what's wrong with him. He starts having these really awkward conversations with the people in the bar because he sees you these know. happy people together. He sees these happy people and he thinks, oh, you two must be so in love and hold on to that. Well, we actually just met at the wedding and we're just trying to get to know each other. Yeah, ain't love grand. I want to I want to I want to feel love. I want to get married. I want to have kids, but it's never going to happen to me cuz I don't know how to love someone. I feel you, Alan. I understand where you're coming from. And his brother tries to cheer him up, John Kenny, "Hey, I met two women at at the wedding. We can go to Reno with these two women, have a hell of a weekend, come back, you're refreshed." As the old saying, they don't say it in this movie, but there's that old saying, the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else. I don't necessarily agree with all of that, but at least his brother does agree with that. <laughs> well, as as they say at one point in the movie, John Candy's character brought a date to one of his own weddings. So, yeah. He's still a POS. Yeah. But, I mean, we'll get to it in a minute. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say it to it now. For a guy that is a POS, for a guy that is a womanizer, for a guy that really does not seem to see the value in a woman, period, all he sees a woman is as the next conquest. When, he, when, we, when we all learn the truth about Madison, when we all learn the truth about Daryl Hannah, he just looks his brother in the eyes and, hey, you had fun with her, right? You care about her. You want to be with her. You have something special with her. I'll never have that. You have that. What the hell are you doing? Don't let that girl go. So even if he is a slime ball, a POS, a womanizer, he still sees something special in love when he sees it. And obviously does care about his brother. Speaking of which, when when you're talking about having fun with Daryl Hannah, the interesting thing is we never actually see him having fun with Daryl Hannah, but uh, they do talk about him having fun with Daryl Hannah. Yeah. There there is there is the scene, you know, the infamous scene where she's in the bathtub. And you see that when she gets hit with water again, she turns back into a mermaid. And, you know, she's she's in the tub and, you know, her tail is unfurling and all that kind of stuff. And he's all like, ah, you're taking a bath. Let me come in and take a bath with you. And, you know, and she's like trying to dry her legs out with the hairdryer and all that, you know. And he busts in the door and she's in there and her legs have finally dried out and turned back into legs again and she's like i'm shy and he's like you're shy after the cab and you know all that and the bedroom and the living room and on top of the refrigerator that's some athletics right there yeah well we did see her scale a you know walk don't walk sign with ease mm-hmm. earlier in the movie from that, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe. Even if, you know, you've been romantically involved with someone, that person still does deserve their privacy. Oh, absolutely. Like I'm, I understand that the thud made him worry about her being injured but once she was like i'm okay 
and she's still coherently talking to him, leave the girl alone. You know? Yeah. Like, maybe if she's still in there three hours later and hasn't come out, or stops responding, or starts slurring her words or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, wellness check. Maybe she's ingested something or whatever, you know, like or she that's slipped when you and get hit her worried. head or yeah, she's you know. But but like as long as she's coherent and it hasn't been like an overly bizarre amount of time or something, you know, sometimes you bonk your knee on something and it makes a noise like it's okay for like an accident to happen or you drop the shampoo bottle or something like or you just slip it's a bathroom it's a wet floor yeah i mean it's okay for somebody to say like i'm fine i don't need assistance thank you i'll be out in a minute yeah like like that is also you could say part of the reason why the previous girlfriend left because the minute things don't go the way Alan likes them, he turns uh, he turns into an asshole. He does a bit, yeah. Like when they're skating, and it's it's the it, this is the build up of the entire movie where she says. Where I come from, I've never heard music. Where I come from, they don't wear clothing. Where I come from, we don't have this or that or television. Or it never gets cold where I live, so I've never seen ice. After all of that comes together and Alan has fallen in love with Madison and says, marry me. Be with me forever. And Ashley's for the first time in the movie says the words, I love you. Which is kind of brushed aside in the movie. I wish that had been a better, a bigger buildup. Especially how they yeah, made it. Yeah, because she gets him like a massively interesting and difficult to get present. That she knows means a lot to him. And then he goes, I love it. And then he goes, I love you. And it's kind of just glossed over. Yeah. And I wish it had been given more weight. You're right. Yeah. So for the first time to anyone, he said the words, I love you. And he wants to marry her. In his mind, you know, she says that she's a, she can only be in, there for six days. When the moon gets full, she's leaving. And he thinks it's an immigration issue because she arrived to the country naked. She has no passport. She has no paperwork, no identification. So the logic in his mind is she ha she's it's an immigration issue. She can only be here for a few days and then she has to go back to her home country, wherever it is. And she says, well, you don't have to leave. You can get it. I can give you a job at my at, at the plant. I can I can do this, I can do that, or you can marry an American and they'll have to let you stay here. Madison, will you marry me? And she rejects him. She says no, because if she stays with him, she can never go back. We're never given the detail of what this means. All we know is that if she stays on land with him past these six days, she will never be able to return to wherever her home is, whatever undersea paradise that the mermaids come from. We never know. We only see it once at the very end of the credits. Alan doesn't understand this. He gets upset, you know. Oh, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm pouring my heart to you. You don't want to be with me. You don't have this. You don't have that. Well, they don't have anything in your country, do they? Well, we have this here. And he just becomes a complete asshole to her because she said she didn't want to marry him. And maybe that's the reason why his previous girlfriend left, because the minute things don't go his way, he becomes an asshole. Now, granted, he tries to apologize, but she's already gone. And I love the the. 
the guy that runs the ice skating place kept some dignity, man. <laughs> That's actually the guy who uh, wrote the movie. Mm. Yeah. Neat. Uh, one of the screenwriters, anyway. Mm. Uh, I want to backtrack a bit, because after the wedding scene, and he pays this very large cab fare from New York to Massachusetts, because Cape Cod is his happy place, we meet the kind of our villain for the movie, uh, Eugene Levy as Dr. Cornbluth. At first, we're not, he's, you know, he, he has these, this equipment. He has these flunkies that he's constantly berating for, for being stupid because he's a scientist and he's smarter than them, which makes him, he's better than them. Very, very Saturday morning cartoon villain things. And his whole thing is that he's trying to per, he's trying to prove the existence of mermaids for some reason. And that's why he's at Cape Cod, because there was a sighting of a mermaid there at some point. And as Madison flees after saving Alan a second time, uh, Eugene Levy sees, hit, sees her, finally says, yes, I finally found the proof I need to, dis- to prove that mermaids are real. And that's, that, become, that becomes the big chase in the movie is Eugene Levy trying to find this mermaid that is now on land as a human to prove the existence of mermaids because his old college professor would tell him stories about mermaids. And that itself is a weird scene because he goes to him and said, yeah, you told me about the myths and the legends and about mermaids and things. And, and, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to prove that they're real. And his professor looks at him and it says, yeah, I told you that as a story. You were a child. They, they, through the dialogue, we learned that he went to this college, this college when he was 12 years old. That's how smart he is. And made it his entire mission in life to prove that mermaids are real. And it's a very interesting take. Especially when you really listen to that dialogue and say that he was quite literally a child when he heard these stories and just made that his life mission. Yeah, you have a feeling that the professor was trying to just do something nice for a 12 year old. Like, you know, he probably didn't understand how to communicate with a 12 year old in his class and so he was like oh let me tell you a bedtime story about mermaids and Eugene Levy's character was like oh my college professor is telling me about mermaids this must be the true story of mermaids if my science college science professor is telling me about mermaids this guy's a smart guy college professor they must be real probably just misunderstood you know mm-hmm. it's side note it was so weird to, to realize eugene levy was in this movie because the last time i saw this movie i did not know who eugene levy was mm. so you know this was probably the first thing i ever saw him in mm. um and so like all the movies he's like really famous for uh are were just not made yet um because he's so young in this it's so so funny to see him so young it's weird because i did know about him but then this is 1984 the comedy channel playing reruns of sctv yeah i was a weird kid watching that (laughs) yeah like i said we didn't get that that channel so i didn't i didn't get to see those until later so Mm -hmm. This probably would have been the first thing I ever saw him in. Mm. Yeah, it's just, it was so funny to go back and, and look at it and be like, oh my goodness, he's in this. And then he is so very young. Mm-hmm. But he does such a good job in this. He makes such a good, like, schlubby little villain, you know? like Yeah. 
You want to punch him in the face. Yeah, but, I mean, of course, in the end, he's not, like, really a villain, because he doesn't mean her any harm. He just wants to prove that mermaids are real. I mean, it's very cartoon the way he tries to get to splash water on her and he ends up splashing water on random women and then getting his ass kicked. And he's got a broken arm because because he splashed it on some he splashed water on on someone's wife and while they're shopping and splash water of a couple coming on an elevator trying to prove that mermaids are real and when he finally does when he finally succeeds with that with that water hose spraying madison as she becomes a mermaid behold the mermaid he he gets regret especially when he sees his scientific peers the way they're treating her they're treating her like an animal they want to dissect her and see what she, how her body works. And she's turning pale in the water they have her in. Well, it's, it's very weirdly shape of water. Cause even, even though they don't make a big deal about it, you do see the giant um, shaker of salt next to the bathtub. Mm-hmm. You know, so she has put, she has salinated the water and we have a feeling they haven't salinated the water mm. in the tank when they capture her. Um, which is why like her scales are kind of peeling and stuff. You know, if you put fish in the wrong salination of water, they, you know, they tend to die or the wrong size tank for too long, you know, um, that's kind of how fish start looking, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it, I love the little touches in Alan's apartment because he does have like a really nice fish tank built into the wall. Again, dude is rich. Uh, cause he has a, an in wall fish tank. And a second fish tank at the office. And a second fish tank at the office. And the fish seem very well cared for. Mm-hmm. You know. So, Madison I would mean, know. Madison would know if the fishes were not taken care of. Well, yeah. But, I mean, it's like when you when you see them, you know, in passing, they do look very nice and very clean and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does seem like he's had this obsession with, you know, fish and ocean creatures and, you know, he keeps going back to the mermaid fountain in that park and, you know, Cape Cod and he keeps going back to Cape Cod and all that kind of stuff. So he keeps surrounding himself with images of the ocean, Mm -hmm. even in his apartment in New York. So that is, where his brain has been for 20 years mm-hmm. and you can tell, but yeah, I mean, going back to the Eugene Levy character, you can tell that he, he doesn't hate Madison. He just wanted to prove to the world that his theory was correct. And he wanted to be accepted by his peers. Yeah. Which even after proving that mermaids are real, He's still not accepted. The one scientist he's been trying to impress this whole movie says, I- I've never seen you. I've, I'll never see you as a member of my team. You're not a real scientist to me. Why don't you go prove the existence of unicorns or something? So after all of that, all of his sacrifice and everything that he's done to try to prove his theory correct. He's still not accepted by his peers. Yeah, and that's the the really sad thing is is that he brings them physical proof, and uh, again, just like in Shape of Water, they're like, okay, let's dissect it and kill it, and he's like, you know, no, I don't, I don't want to kill the thing. I I just wanted, you know, like video footage proving that it's real, 
we have that now. Let's release it back into the ocean. It's a sentient creature. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy who's literally put his body at risk to prove this theory. He's got a, his arm in a cast and his neck in a brace. Granted, his own his own fault. But he, yeah, he, you know, look a little more closely before you throw water on every blonde woman in New York. Yeah. I mean, this was the 80s. There were a lot of bleach blondes going around. Mm-hmm. But he never wanted to hurt anybody. He even says that says this when Tom Haynes confronts him. I didn't mean to hurt her. I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt anyone. I just wanted to prove my theory. I'm a scientist. And it, it, it kind of shows what happened. I mean, we've talked about this when we talked about soul last week. It's it's that when that passion becomes obsession, he let his passion for science, his passion for this proving this theory of mermaids existing become his obsession. And he didn't realize the consequences of his actions. And now that he's seeing these consequences in front of him, he's seeing Madison suffer. He sees Alan suffer because he can't even see the woman he loves. And he does have that, that third act face turn. He says, okay, I can get you her. I can get you in. I can get her out. It's a it's it's a good idea, you know. The the uh, as, as the story as the movie goes, there are these two scientists from Sweden that want to and see about see this mermaid, and they have Tom Hanks and John Candy dress up as these as these uh, Swedish scientists. And I, I will say this, even though there's subtitles on screen for the Swedish Disney Plus, still put subtitles on screen so it's subtitles on top of subtitles i don't know if they played that on the on the one that you watched but yeah yeah it it is but i i love the idea that um john candy just learned random swedish phrases without knowing what they meant because like i said he, he he he's a womanizer he writes letters to penthouse magazine and apparently he watches a lot of porn yeah especially porn from sweden well the thing is is that he's not wrong he says in the movie that a lot of the better adult films come from sweden and at that point in time he that was true a lot of the better made adult films did come out of Scandinavia and Sweden. Mm-hmm. I mean, where do you think we got Menomina from? Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that happens to be an actual historical fact at that point in time. That is no longer true, but it's it's very bizarre that, like, well, that's what this guy would be into, and that was a fact at the time. But the thing is, is that, you know, I, I don't know how many of them came with subtitles. Probably none. But he... He just probably heard random phrases over and over again. Well, he said he watched the same movie 400 times. Well, so yeah. And so so it's one of those things like, you know, how you'll hear like 99 Luft balloons or whatever. Like you'll hear random things in German or, or whatever, you know. Certain anime and, fans watching uh, watching subtitled anime. Yeah, anime fans that'll just hear things in Japanese and you don't entirely know what they mean, you know. But um, he heard, you know, phrases. And so when the guy challenges him on, like, you know, do you speak Swedish or whatever? And he's like, you know, oh, yeah. He just answers back the first thing he thinks of. And it's a joke about you know, the size of his genitals. And 
the thing is, is like, but he's talking to a military guy, and the military guy's like, yeah, yeah you know. Amy, he was interested. Because he he says, you know, he he says in Swedish, you know, what uh, what brings you so far away from home? And he answers about the size of his generals, and the and the guard is very interested in this comment. Uh, whatever floats your boat, dude. This movie is very um very proactive for a 1980s movie, especially earlier in the movie. When 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 Madison tries to tell Alan her big secret and we know what the secret is, but Alan doesn't know. So he goes, why? Uh, what's your big secret? And one of the things that she he says, did you used to be a man? I don't care and, about that if it is. Yeah. And he he says he would totally be OK with it if that's what her secret was like. He still wants to marry her. Mm hmm. And I was like, that's like for really progressive for yeah. 1984. Like, good job, Alan. Like, usually in 80s comedies, that will be played off as a joke. Hell, even in 90s comedies, that will be played off as a joke. But this is a straight, you know, him being very honest. I don't care what your secret is. I don't care if you used to be a man. I love you and I want to be with you. Meanwhile, we have John Kenny saying he has a large manhood and the guard is very interested in that. Which is also, yeah, pretty progressive. This is even before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you know? Yeah. The, this movie is strangely interesting. Again, like I said, we know that that Alan and Madison have slept together multiple times in this movie, we never see it. And like there, I said, all the nudity in this movie is bizarrely non-sexual. Mm -hmm. Which, again, is rather progressive. So I don't, think, I don't think Disney even had the cojones at this point in time to do a full sex scene in one of their movies. Even if it was the studio that was supposed to be the more adult-centered movies. But weirdly, this, you know, we watch a lot of stuff that's like, ooh, that does not hold up. You know, mm -hmm. even under the Disney brand. And I just got to say, I was shocked at how weirdly unproblematic this movie was. Yeah. Like the... Kind of the worst thing about this movie is that it contains shots of the Twin Towers because it was filmed in 1984. And it's really bizarre looking at 80s downtown New York at night versus New Year's just happened. We just saw downtown New York in 2024. And how night and day those two places look. Yeah, this is right after they started doing the cleanup of, like, Times Square and stuff. Mm -hmm. And removing all the adult theaters and the strip clubs and the, you know. Also, point, the movie theater in this movie is playing Evil Dead. Yeah, there there is a movie theater playing Evil Dead. It would have just come out. You know, and there's, like, breakdancers on the street and it's... You know, just like, hey, you know, that's that's an awesome thing. You know, that's mm -hmm. you don't get the sense of like. Crime ridden, gritty streets of New York, you know, it's it's New York City seems kind of a welcoming place, mm -hmm. except for she almost causes I mean, she causes a car accident and a guy gets out and yells at her. That's kind of the most, like, aggressive New York City this movie gets. Mm. Which is weirdly wholesome. Yeah. It's amazing what, coming back to this movie and seeing, for a movie that 
is supposed to be from the studio that is handling the more mature movies, that it kind of does retain some of the Disney wholesomeness. That's really weird coming back to this movie and seeing that. Yeah, I I have not seen this movie in absolute ages, and I did not remember much about it. And I was expecting it to be extremely problematic with a capital P. Raunchy. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was expecting it to be raunchy 80s comedy. Mm-hmm. And I was absolutely shocked by how not that it is. Mm-hmm. Even the ending of the movie is extremely wholesome. Because, you know, we talked about when we talked about The Little Mermaid that even though that's still probably my favorite Disney movie of all time, slightly problematic in some areas of how it treats Ariel and her infatuation with Prince Eric. Mm -hmm. That is not where Madison is coming from. Like Madison gets on land and Alan is immediately like, marry me, stay here forever. Uh, You know, be mine. I, I will get you a job here. You will live in my house. You will, you know, you you will be my woman forever. And she's like, no, want to go back to the underwater kingdom. Thank you. And even before, like, you know, the government gets a hold of her and starts testing on her and everything. It's not like that turns her against the above world. She's like, no, I kind of came up here to like see you and kiss you and do other things with you. But I was always planning to go home. She almost goes home when when Alan gets mad at her. Like we see her start to take her dress off and looking at the ocean and she was she's just about to leave at that moment before she turns around and says, "Yes, I will marry you." So she was ready to bolt right then because in that moment she believed that Alan didn't love her anymore. Because she told him no. So she was willing to give that up, give up going back to the whatever her undersea kingdom, whatever that is, to be with this man. And then at the end, he, she, she tells him, come with me, be with me, live in my undersea kingdom. And he's like, um, yeah, no, I can't even swim. And she's like. No, you remember when you were a little kid and how you weren't drowning to death? And he was like, yeah. She's like, yeah, that's because you were with me. And he was like, "Uh, the what now? And she's like, if you are with me, you are going to be safe underwater. And he's like, "Uh, okay. Which we do. if, If you go back to that beginning of the movie, he's breathing underwater as a kid. And during well, the end credits, he's breathing underwater. Well, she is trying. I, I'm not sure he's exactly breathing underwater. I think he's kind of stunned and, and holding his breath because he's not under there for very long. But she's moving toward him to try to kiss him. Because he's struggling underwater when he first jumps in. Uh, At the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And she goes up to him and she kisses him. And that's when he starts to breathe underwater. But if you look at the beginning of the movie, when they're little kids, she's swimming up to him. And she moves in like she's going to kiss him. And you're thinking, like, that's weird. They're little kids. Like, maybe she's just like, oh, boy, first kiss or whatever. But it's very clearly obvious she was trying to save his life. Mm -hmm. Because it seems very much like the kiss is the thing that makes him capable of breathing underwater. And so I think she saw a drowning little boy and she was like, if I kiss him, he'll be able to breathe underwater. And this is a big thing for him, too, because he even says, how can I leave my brother? Because he's thinking about not just that he's not not necessarily the business. He's talking about his brother. 
or I'll go with you and I'll come home on the holidays and see my brother. He says, no, no, no. If you come with me, there's, there's no going back. So in that moment, he has to make a choice. Does he go with the woman he loves and be with her forever? Never seeing the only member of his family that we know of. Or does he stay? Yeah, we don't know what happened to their parents. Well, we but... they make a mention that their father died five years prior to the movie, which is why they're running the business now. We never heard anything about their mother. But that's all we know. As far as the movie is concerned, the only family Alan has is his brother. So that is the choice he has to make. He can stay with his brother on land or stay with the woman he loves in the sea. But the thing is, is that all things being equal, I'm not sure he would have entirely had to worry about his brother because at the point where he gets you know, the bonk on the head from the boat and he really gets into Madison and dealing with her. John Candy kind of takes over the the business and things are actually going okay. Like without Alan there to do everything, the brother kind of steps up. Freddie, yeah. And as he says, as as Freddie says earlier in the movie, he was there when their father started the business. He knows everything about that job. Yeah, I think Freddie's just kind of been slacking off because there's been somebody else there to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of been what's going on. Mm. Freddie had to step up. Yeah, and so I think Freddy's capable of doing it. The only problem is, is that, like, is Freddy going to be just in jail for, like, how many years now? For breaking into a government facility and releasing, for lack of a better term, what the government would consider Madison government property? Yeah, because the last time we see... Freddy, he is sitting in the tank pretending to fish. Mm. And he's just like, hey, boys, come on in. The water's fine. And he's just surrounded by, like, you know, military guys with guns. And they're like, arrest him, you know. And the thing is, is that the last time we see Eugene Levy, he is also being arrested. And the last time we see Tom Hanks... He is swimming away to the underwater kingdom, free and clear. (laughs) So the thing is, is like Tom Hanks gets a happy ending. Eugene Levy and and John Candy are uh, probably going to spend a long time in a military prison. Well, that's the thing. This movie got a sequel. Yeah, Splash 2 was a direct-to-video movie made in 1988, four years after this movie came out, and was done on the magical world of Disney. Because it was a direct-to-dip-to-v... Because it was a made-for-TV movie, yes, none of the actors in this movie came back. So all of the characters are played by completely new actors, and apparently Freddy is just doing fine. He's not in jail. He's out and about, and... Alan and Madison actually do come back and have a, a a life on land, and it's not good. I'm just going to be honest with you. Froze, uh, Splash Two is not a good movie. It's a cash grab because Splash One did major ratings for Disney, and they wanted more. <laughs> yeah, I never saw that, so this to me is the movie. Mm. Though I will say, when it comes to Splash 2, uh, Amy Yesbeck ended up uh, playing Madison. I mean, that's that's good. I like her. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as I'm aware, Splash 2 is not on Disney+, Plus, nor is it anywhere, nor it should it be anywhere, I'm going to be honest with you. It is best forgotten. <laughs> so, Kiki, uh, Splash, does it have the magic? 
shockingly, I think, yeah. I mean, it's not going to go down in history as one of my favorite movies. I'm still not a rom-com-y kind of person. But I was shocked at how cute it was, how unproblematic it was. A lot of the jokes still land. The cast is very well cast. Yeah. I'm going to agree agree with you. This movie has the magic. Uh, Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah make a very cute couple. Tom Hanks and John Candy have amazing chemistry together. And like I said, I'm going to repeat it. I wish that those two did more things together. I would have loved for them to like be one of those things where they were just doing movies together. Because I want to see what else that they could have done together. And I'm sad that they never got that chance. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, definitely has the magic. Definitely check it out, especially the new. Uh, well, uh, before we get going, I'll say it since this was a 4K transfer. How did it look on your 4K TV? I mean, it looked pretty good. Um, I, I didn't really feel like there was a lot of enhancement. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it looked about as sharp as, you know. An 80s uh, movie is going to be. An 80s movie is going to look. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would recommend it. So, on to next week. So, Kiki, there's this family of cats that walk into a talent agency. No. Fine. Fair enough. Next week, we are doing the Disney classic, The Aristocats. The Aristocats. Aristocats. It's the cats. We will do that one. So come back next week for the Aristocats, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversations on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Rewatching the Magic. We are on the X, formerly known as Twitter, at Rewatch the Magic. And new episodes are available every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. Podcasts are fun. But there's work to be done. We encourage you to get involved. Here are some organizations we support. The American Civil Liberties Union fights for the constitutional rights of all Americans. Find them at ACLU.org. The National Network of Abortion Funds helps people find access to safe abortion services. Their site is abortionfunds.org. The Trevor Project provides a 24-7 crisis helpline for LGBTQ youth and education services for schools on LGBTQ issues. They can be found at thetrevorproject.org. Or find a way to help in your area.